Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Bob Saget. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the biographies and memoirs or humor category for episode number 121 with Joe Coy on Mixed Plate. Hey, everybody. This is Joe Coy, author of Mixed Plate. Check that out. And you guys are listening to Books on Pod with Trey Ellen. I love you, Trey. Hello, readers. We're taking another break from books today for our No Book Required series. The most recent example of this was episode number 158 with Andrew Dice Clay. And we stay in the world of comedy for my next guest. Bob Saget is a Grammy-nominated stand-up comedian, director, actor, and best-selling author. And he's performing in Austin this Friday night at the historic Paramount Theater. If you want to grab some of the few remaining tickets left, you can go to austintheater.org. Bob, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to be awake and alive, and I get to be in Austin any minute, so I'm happy. Yeah, I'm excited about that as well. I've actually had tickets for your show, uh, I want to say going back about a year and a half or so. Unfortunately, COVID disrupted things the first time around, but here we are in early December, finally getting to make this happen at the Paramount Theater. Have you uh, had a chance to perform in Austin much in the past? I have. I used to perform there a whole lot. Um, I did a thing for the uh, um, Ally Coalition, which was a wonderful thing that I was able to perform at with Jay Farrow and Vanessa Bayer. And it was really wonderful for the uh, LGBTQ. Um, did I say it right? Because Q is you, two different words. I'm confused <laughs> by the, all the letters now. Uh, there's, I, there's, I a couple barely... of, there's a couple of symbols in there now, too, I believe. I, I, I'll support anything that helps anybody that needs help. That's how I feel. So Absolutely. I was able to do that. And, um, but I've performed in Austin at the Paramount before a couple of times. I've always, I love it there. I've been, I guess 35 years I've been performing there. So this is a special, especially after the pandemic and being able to open the doors again, because it was closed and they kept rescheduling me a couple of times. And, uh, now I get to go in on Friday, which is any minute. So that's, that's good to do a show on for because my my stand-up is kind of very suited for austin it always has been and it's not uh, i'm not in a, a very blue period i'm not in uh as i guess i have stuff i want to say and and things i'm i'm 65 years old now so it, it doesn't put me in i don't feel old i don't act old um i do stand up i do music um and comedy songs that are relevant for me not parodies and it just is it always i always felt at home in austin some of the best audiences just the people are very smart and very comedy savvy and uh it's what i'm working toward i'm about to do a special so i've been out touring and i'll keep touring for another couple months till they shoot it and I'm loving my stand-up more than I have. Literally, I, I charted it back to 1995 when I had lost my voice. I didn't not my voice, but my my muse. And I didn't find uh, I don't know what funny was. So then I went into a, a place where everybody was, I guess, shocking or, or not for the. I, I didn't do it for the purpose of being shocking. I did it because that's gallows humor. But think of the worst thing 
that happens and then make a joke about it because that way you're raising it up in front of people. That was a theory 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And it's not the theory now. If you're going to talk about something, you, you pretty much need to be uh, have compassion thrown in there and not have, I'm trying not to have anger in anything I do. And I'm not trying, I'm trying not to talk politics and stuff. So it's, or religion and any, anything you don't do on a first date, I'm trying not to do just because I'm not trying. It's just not happening. I have no desire to start a fight in the audience. I'm trying to put them out. So no abortion jokes on Friday night then. I'm afraid that I can't guarantee that, but, um, <laughs> You know, that's the thing, is I say I'm not going to do something, but if I do something, it's not done in a way that a good church-going person, uh, and they got two days till church, so they're fine. You know, they can they can repent for my sins on Sunday, but I, I don't do anything that... Um, I, I do have one joke that, that's really odd that you uh, bring it up or you heard about it, but I, I went and did Dave Chappelle's uh, Yellow Springs. I was there for quite a bit and there was a joke that I had thought of and uh, I was coaxed to do it by him and Louis CK <laughs> and uh, my role models and I did it and um, it, it's it's a funny joke it's 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 silly actually it was just you know such serious subjects I, I try to veer away from things that were the subject matter of uh, my stand-up years ago I never had an abortion joke until 2021. I don't know why I do, but it's it's not meant to hurt anybody, and I think people know that because a lot of us are using uh, two minutes of disclaiming before you tell the joke, and then a minute afterward, or reverse in that order of more time at the end after you said the joke, or just move on. But a lot of times, I will I will feel bad because I'll think about well, who just heard that that this affects in a negative way. And then I've tried to find humor in that. It's very interesting discourse that I have now. It's different than it used to be. I don't know. It's because I've been doing a podcast for almost two years that were, uh, well, a year and a half that is meaningful to me. And it's a different part of my personality. I, I do a lot of different things, you know. I always say I do many, many things, none of them well. But that's that's not true because I'm proud of the movies I've directed. I've been on Broadway and I've got nominated for a Grammy. I write my comedy music I'm very proud of. I have a new song, a couple of new songs, one in particular that I, I know the Austin audience will respond well to. So Can't can't wait to hear that one. And uh, you're underselling yourself a little bit, Bob. You've done a lot I of- do that cool purposely. Stuff. That's the psychology. Yeah, you set, <laughs> set the low bar and clear it really easily. But I'm in that generation that- loved you on Full House and America's Funniest Home Videos, but I was also in the Howard Stern generation. So I remember being intrigued by this notion that you were actually a dirty content, a dirty, a dirty comic, excuse me, when you weren't uh, playing that character on television. And that was probably around the mid-90s when you said that you lost your voice. Do you feel like you lost your comedic voice because you were having to play the straight guy on uh, on those very popular TV shows? Well, well, no, because I, lo I love acting and I love Full House. So any uh, double bipolar type, sorry to use that term, uh, because that, that's a sensitive term for me, even myself. But um, yeah, see, I played Richie Cunningham on Full House. Uh, that was Happy Days was, and then uh, John Stamos was the Fonz, and Dave was <laughs> Collier, was either Ralph or Potsy. And uh, we, I always said Michelle, Ashley, Mary Kate were Tom Bosley, um, <laughs> you know, because they were the voice of reason. And yeah. but it was 
you know, it was a formula of making a family out of people that weren't related um, of different shows. And Happy Days was the show of my youth. And then, of course, Partridge Family, was, I was young when that was out. So Full House has become the definable show. HBO Max just bought it all eight years of the first one. That's still running Fuller House. It just is a a piece of, um, you know, American culture. So when I went out, when I felt like I was losing my voice, I think part of it was because people perceived me a certain way. And they think if you're playing something on television, that that's what you're like in life or in a movie. And um, the defense for that is Anthony Hopkins does not eat people. You know, that's the defense. It's like trying to explain to Gen Z that, uh, no, if someone roasts you and makes jokes about you, that doesn't mean you did those things. It's not the news. It's a roast. You can't explain it to people because they're a lot of people that are closed and have made their minds up. But it doesn't matter. None of it matters. It really doesn't. What matters is I love doing the work. I love working on Full House. I'm, I was texting with everybody yesterday. We were we had we were laughing out loud over things something Dave Collier posted. We love each other. So that has nothing to do with my career. It had to do with friendships I made along the way. So um yeah, the stand up was I was I I wanted to just wanted to be funnier. And then at that time, uh, the idea of I know what happened. I mean, I was a clean cut, I looked like your dentist or your accountant and here i am out there saying stuff like i'm a badass you know and then i'm on entourage playing a guy who acts like he's a badass and that's like that's the joke so whatever i say is not ill intent you know it has none there it's just uh look at me being the bad guy it's you know it's just it's just it's silly i'm not that anymore that's the thing now i'm just talking as myself to people and their longer stories about what we're all going through and marriage and relationships and kids. But my perspective of it is strange because it, I have an odd sense of humor. I always had it. My dad is the one that reinforced it. So a lot of my comedy is just why is a, uh, a skunk eating your testicle? You know, that's, <laughs> sounds terrible you know but there's it it's a rational story it is a fear of of falling asleep in the woods or something else happening and so i but most of my stuff is is on point with what makes people laugh and that that's why i've been selling out everywhere i've been going and by selling out i don't mean like hosting emergency funny stone videos i mean i sold out you know <laughs> Whenever I see a video on the internet, ever on YouTube or Instagram, I went, I I ran that video. I, you know, thirty years ago, nothing's really changed. You know, if somebody's pants fall down, someone gets hit in the crotch, and I'm I'm the conduit for that. And at the time I did that, a lot I got a lot of hate mail. There wasn't internet, so you didn't get the comments. And then now I'm beloved because it was iconic and legendary all these words people throw at you and they go oh so that was funny i just didn't know it uh but hosting a show is not always that rewarding it's hard to be incredibly funny unless you get to improv your way through i'm actually working on something right now which should be more documentary in format of a, of a game show idea 
So I'm a bit of a stand-up comedy nerd. I love uh, the present of the art form, but also looking back on the history. So it's thrilling to get to speak with somebody who was there really, maybe not at, but near the beginning of the comedy store. Because you got your start there, if I'm correct, in the late 1970s. Is that right? Yeah, in 78. And it it started in 74. So so I missed Freddie Prince. I never got to meet, sadly. Um, Gotcha. Um, So... But you, everybody else, I did. You, um, you uh, had some kind words for Mitzi Shore when she passed away several years ago. I've heard plenty of comics talk about that moment where Mitzi passed them and just what that meant for them. Do you remember that moment? When was it? And just what was going through your mind, body, and spirit? And Mitzi uh, finally gave you that thumbs up that you were going to be a paid regular. Well, that happened really quick. It was, I had a very strange experience with her. You were either like a son to her, you were maybe her lover or a boyfriend or someone she found appealing or, or a nephew. I was like a nephew. So I had won the student Academy award for a documentary I made about my nephew having his face reconstructed. I made that in 1974 Temple university. I'm sorry, I made it in 78. So I started at Temple in 74. It's really hard to do your own uh, Wikipedia while you talk. <laughs> but, uh, but but in 78, I went out to L.A. because I won the student Oscar. So the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences flew me out. And it was amazing. I met Spielberg and all these amazing people. And then um, I went to the comedy store and I brought my guitar with me. I was mostly a guitar act. I would sing while my guitar gently weeps turn a valve and water poured out of my guitar all over my pants, which works if you've got 10 rows max of people. If you've got 15 rows, they can't see it. So it's it's nothing. You're just singing the song. But otherwise, you see my pants, the guitar is leaking. Uh, So uh, Mitzi saw me on a Monday night and said, don't go to grad school at USC. I was all set to go to film school. She said, Do, you know, come with me and work here for free. I went, okay. Wow. <laughs> so I came back about a month later to start school at USC, maybe two months, because I missed my Temple graduation to go win the student Oscar. And I had went up at the comedy store. I didn't look at it as an audition. I had, I didn't even have any hopes. I just wanted to go up because that was the place. Everybody I watched on TV was on The Tonight Show or got a sitcom or you know, whatever. And so I went back a month later went to USC for three days, grad school would have probably made about nine horror films by then, <laughs> you know, by, I don't know, by now. And then, um, I don't know, Mitzi just started giving me spots and I started working all the time. I, then I did an improv class, the groundlings for a year. And I studied acting for five years with Daryl Hickman. And then, um, I would, be warm up for bosom buddies with Tom Hanks, Peter Scolari, Peter, we just mm-hmm. lost. Um, Tom Hanks has done fairly well. I don't know if your listeners are aware of his work. Um, One or two. And films. That, that, see, when you say something like that now, people go like, what? He's famous. What? And they don't, that's the sad part is facetiousness is, uh, has turned just into nasty sarcasm. It's, it's been a bad transition for satire. That's why I'm looking forward to seeing this movie. Don't don't look up. Um, I, I think it's going to be. I'm just really looking forward to it. That's the one with Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio, Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that movie, right? Oh yeah. Um, 
I can't wait to see it because it's a satire. It's kind of like network. It's real, but it's also making a statement, you know? No question. Wag the dog is another good example of that. So yeah. Amongst, yeah. amongst the people that you knew as you were working at the comedy store in the 1980s, and I'm pretty sure I'm correct on this one because I heard you on Rogan's podcast. Uh, this would have been several months ago. I've lost track of time over the last 21 months. Some, sometime in the last six months, I want to say, Bill Hicks's name got brought up, and you were about to say something about him, but then you guys moved on in the conversation pretty quickly. Now, Bill Hicks is beloved here in Austin. Obviously a Texas guy, grew up in Houston, did a lot of his honing of the craft here in Austin as well. When you think of Bill Hicks, what comes to mind for you, Bob? A nice young kid that told me he thought I was funny and he'd been watching me and was uh, a fan of mine and he was trying to find his voice. So I met him in Houston and I worked with him. I don't know where. There was a comedy club in Austin. I can't remember, but I, I worked it. And Bill would go up. Bill might have opened for me. I'm not sure. But Sam Kennison, I had met first, and Sam turned me on to Bill, said he was a nice young guy. And then you could see when you watched Bill, similarities in the attitude a little bit of Sam, of that way of setting up, you know, pacing, talking about something that's bothering you, and then getting out the anger for it of things that are just atrocious and things that are just hypocritical. And that comes from George Carlin, and that comes from you know, uh, Lenny Bruce, and that comes from, you know, uh, Dick Gregory and all the greatest comedians that ever lived. So um, that's a recent art form when you really go through it and you go that far back, you go, well, when, what, you know, otherwise you're in vaudeville, you know, <laughs> when that, and that's not where we're at now. We're people that are saying great things. And Bill Hicks, I just watched a clip on him the other night and I went, Oh, I could fix that <laughs> of, of this great, you know, and he is a legend and he is, and he did die way too soon. That's one of my biggest gripes is that brilliant, brilliant people that are funny as hell pass away young too often and non-funny people are still walking the streets. Um, somebody would say, well, maybe you sag it, you know, I'm always ready for the, the really sweet retort but bill was really really good and, and had a nervousness about him the smoking kind of took that away but mainly was the content of what he was talking about and it was religious and it was trying to figure out a lot of things you don't talk about and uh that's what i loved i love that I, i'm drawn to that if a person has a point that's not trying to attack humankind uh but attack usually the ignorance of, of humankind that's or how could people believe this type of attitude but sam i got his first spot at the comedy store because i met him in houston and sam kennison uh was angry because this houston workshop wouldn't allow him to do um his act because he talked about jesus a lot so to get back at them he chained himself to a telephone pole outside the outside the club and put a crown of thorns on and then had fake blood dripping from his head and wow. it was on the front page of the Houston Chronicle of the entertainment section. He shows it to me and he's got his head down, his eyes kind of up and in the picture. And he says, I did this. So he said, you know, comedy club persecutes Sam Kennison like Jesus was persecuted. That's the context. <laughs> and uh, I said, I got to know this guy. This guy's this guy understands me. 
Um, and we became friendly for a little while. And then he went off and did his crazy shenanigans. But Bill Hicks, that you, I mean, I'm, I'm a 20 minute answer. I'm sorry. I like talking about this. Bill Hicks was, I mean, really, obviously quite brilliant. I mean, you look at all things comedy, they're running him constantly. Yeah, well, look, I ask these questions because I want to hear your uh, your thoughtful answer, so I appreciate that. we got a great Sam no, Kinison nice. story out of it as well. Now, getting back to what you were doing in the 1990s, while most people remember the Full House, the America's Funniest Home Videos, one of my favorite moments of yours from that decade was what I have to consider the best cameo from a comedy in the 1990s, and that, of course, is uh, your scene in Half-Baked, where you drop the infamous I used to suck dick for coke line. How in the world did that come about? Is that a matter of you knowing Neil's uh, dad, Kevin, who was a stand-up, obviously, in the, the 1980s? Was oh, I thought thing? you meant, did I, did I know that Neil's dad sucked dick for coke? So that's why I said <laughs> it. No, I did not. I didn't think he did. Uh, that was really simple. I was directing Dirty Work with Norm and Arnie and a lot of great people. And um, they, the same producer, Bob Simons, was producing Half-Baked, which I originally wanted to direct. And they had a wonderful director. She's great. Um, Tamara, I'm sorry, my brain goes blank on anything. It's not about me. But <laughs> but uh, they said, would you like to play this role in the rehab scene? I was shooting, I, was, I had a day, I had half a day I could get away. And I read the script and I said, sure, I'll say that. And then I, I just did. And I'd been friends with Dave. It was Dave and Neil. And um, and then I knew so many people in the movie, Jim Brewer and Harlan Williams. And uh, so a lot of friends. And so I went there and did the scene. It was really simple. It just, there was no effort involved. I found that most of the time, things I've worked the hardest to get done don't happen. And things I put no effort into, I just show up. And that was one of those little things. And that was, I understood, one of the bigger laughs. I never saw it in a theater, but people said that it was so unexpected. And, oh, my gosh, can you believe Bob's talking this way? And it's like everybody else that knew me went, no. Um, you know, you give him something to say that's horrible because I think it's just words. I don't I don't look at it as uh, a sexual thing. So when I, when I curse and I drop F-bombs, you know, usually it's not a verb. It's an exclamatory, but um, I guess it, sometimes I would get too gross or, or, or do jokes about subject matter that you just don't, these now, even five years ago, I, I, 10 years ago, I stopped doing stuff. Hmm. I did it. I've done a couple of songs in my career that would do well, really well with some audiences. And I was in Austin even for that um, Alley Coalition um, era. I don't think it's a lie. No, it's, and I, I give them money and I support them and I, I like them. And I did a song that had been doing very well. It was a music parody. Um, and I stopped doing it after that because it didn't, it didn't, it affected that audience. I had not had a concentrated audience that was, uh, you know, 99% gay and transsexual and transgender and, um, a lot of different, uh, people that I had not been collectively in front of before. And that affected me. I don't like to hurt anybody. So it's interesting. People ask me to do, Oh, tell the aristocrats. I'm like, no, you know, I know a family that actually went through something like that. And no, I only told the joke twice. It was in this documentary 
which is about freedom of speech, but it's also a chance for people to let us be, you know, filthy behind a trash dumpster was the idea. That's what George Carlin said. Don't tell this joke to anyone. So I'm trying to stay true to that. (laughs) So it's interesting that Half-Baked and Dirty Work come out the same year, 1998, because I've read... Uh, I've read from various sources that both films were really affected in terms of what they wanted to do, what they wanted to become, were affected by the studio essentially saying, no, we need you to yuck it up in more sophomoric ways that will avoid this R rating. For Half-Baked, and maybe you can uh, maybe you can tell me whether this is right or not, since you were maybe going to direct it at one point, Neil and Dave wanted that to be more of a dark comedy than the stoner comedy. I would, Im- I would imagine that's true. I don't know that. And and it was never those things aren't decided ahead of time. Normally they go, let's make the movie, and then they go make the movie, and then the studio gives notes, and then you go, no, the script's done, and then they and you work on the script, which we did with this script of Dirty Work was by Norm and mm-hmm. Frank Sebastiano and Fred Wolf, and and uh, Half Baked was was Dave and Neil. I don't know the story behind them. I only know the story behind us. And nobody said we wanted to be more of, they just wanted it to be Norm's movie. Mm-hmm. They, Norm was popular. They knew it was going to be subversive. It had enough silliness in it. It was written that way. It was really written that way from page one. And we did rewrites. And um, a lot of them, we, you rewrite as you're working. You know, this can this be funnier? Or wouldn't it be funny if we added that? And they cut about the, the MGM. I went to the MPAA and asked Jack Valenti, who's no longer with us, but he was one of the big, biggest people at the MPAA, uh, which gives you a rating, and said, please make us a PG. I don't know if PG-13 existed. It must have been. I said, please don't give us um, an R. And then and then I fought to keep it an R. Mm. Uh, and... And uh, the producer and the studio just said, we really need it to be PG because R-rated comedies don't do well. And as life always has it, a month later, something about Mary came out and Ben Stiller had a semen in his hair because he masturbated in a bathroom. (laughs) And we just had some, you know, Norm was anally raped in a prison, but I had to put different (laughs) words in his mouth. He goes, "Uh, you know, that was disgusting, Uh, you know. And that means something, and he goes, and and uh, and the other thing, the other thing was actually, if you look at his mouth, it's in a wide shot, and and the anal rape, not you know, not to mention the anal rape or something like that. Wow. But there were things like that, just little things like that that would have made, I think, uh, a more subversive audience laugh, an audience that enjoys that SNL that sometimes we actually have right now which you're watching it and you go, wow, that was kind of, that was great. You know, they did that and that was politically savvy and it, it went to a dark area that I'm not used to seeing on television. And it felt like old school SNL a little bit. It's always nice when it goes through those waves of what great lampooning, whether you're from the national lampoon uh, and a lot of writers were that worked on SNL or uh, from the Harvard lampoon, you know, or from whatever the lampoon's called in Oxford. I can't remember because I'm dumb. But that's Norm was all comedians, as you know, you've talked to some, are outsiders. That's just how they function. They just, uh, they live outside the box and they look at everything, whether they're just 
whether they're clean cut, Jim Gaffigan talking about his family, Sebastian. These are gentlemen that go on stage and talk about their family or their wife, who they love very much, like they're all aliens. Like mm-hmm. you, my kids who want my, you know, every time Sebastian talks about his wife's Amazon boxes, you know, he's speaking for anybody that has that happen in their life. They're with their partner who orders from Amazon three times a day, which is, I think, the pandemic. I think it's actually a symptom of COVID is you must shop Amazon three times a day. <laughs> but then you look at other comedians that are causing uh, quite a ruckus, you know, that uh, friends of mine that are getting called out and people want to cancel them for their for their right to speak what comedy they or I don't know. Sometimes they just stand on a soapbox and and or or just talking straight to people, which there's much more of that now. There's much more. Well, spoken words a good example, and you see Dave Chappelle just got nominated for a Grammy for spoken word, uh, and in that I, I deservedly so. Um, so it's very hard to cancel people, uh, you know, when it's a witch hunt, even if what people claim someone did, if you really, I don't know, a subjective jury of comedy critics calls someone guilty of what, what are they guilty of? They hurt some people perhaps, or they, they spoke their mind uh, and you don't understand their whole point because you never got to the end of the thing, which was the point or I'm wrong, but I do think, we've got a witch hunt going on and that's, and I am not wanting to be part of it whatsoever. Uh, calling anybody out or just always saying negative things. Everybody says negative stuff. No, people don't. People, I'll do a dad joke, a pun, a stupid dick joke. And Oh, I forgot that. Oh, what? It's a dick joke. And I'll, I'll even put it on Twitter and people will just attack it. And I usually want to have an auto response of, have you ever, try to think of anything funny or make anybody laugh you know what the fuck is wrong with you i write when i started on twitter i would do it because i figured a kid's going to the parking lot i'll make him laugh on the way as he gets in the car you know little did i know he looked at it while he was driving and he had a truck but i didn't know that but (laughs) that the idea was to amuse people and now literally everybody just wants to criticize or go but i'm bump or, or you know emoticons of crickets and I don't really give a shit because they're not trying to do comedy. They're just sitting back criticizing everybody. They have no purpose unless they are helping people. Unless they're a social worker in their spare time, I think they're just nasty people that are unrequited in their own life. Or they joined the herd mentality. Yeah, so. they're, they're one of three things, Bob. They are either miserable people and they're trying to drag others into their misery. They have no senses of humor or they also don't understand the greater meaning of something like stand-up comedy, where you are yeah. saying outrageous things to something you said at the very start of this conversation to maybe make a larger point versus uh, seeing things so small picture in that moment for something that you may find a little bit offensive. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. You said it much more truncated and intelligently than I did. Yeah, they're, they are not considering the source and considering that here's a good person saying something and they are well aware of this is a dumbass thing they're saying, or they're making this comment 
because they are making fun of the very thing that they are making the offensive joke about in the case of a joke that could be taken offensive. Otherwise you write a homogenous joke and people just go, okay. Or you get a, a brilliant joke and you know, it is, you went, where, what, where'd that come from? I, I, that went through my brain and out my uh, thumbs <laughs> or out my, out my mouth in front of these nice people. I'm, I'm a, I've really accepted that most people are nice. So I'll perform in front of an audience anywhere. Uh, you know, I've, I've been throughout Texas. I opened, you know, a lot of places were closed. Theaters were closed. Theaters went broke. Um, I was able to go. I opened the Houston Improv. It was after a year, a year and a half. Texas doesn't close down. It did. And it, Texas is angry over it. And now it's coming back. And um, it, we all know Texas has its own personality. Oh, yeah. And it's, Texas has always been a friend of mine uh, everywhere, every city, except Beaumont. When I played <laughs> in the El Paso airport, I was like 22. And there was a knife sharpening shop at the El Paso airport. That's how old I am. A knife sharpening shop. So on your flight, if you want to sharpen your knife to get it ready for the flight, you can do that oh at the knife sharpening shop. It's probably a yogurt <laughs> land now or something. But in Beaumont, I was playing behind chicken wire. I was 22 also, 23. Wow. And they threw bottles at the chicken wire. And it was like the Blues Brothers where they get attacked. The Blues Brothers, if there's any kids out there, that was John Bellucci and Dan Aykroyd. They were in a movie. And it was a big, big thing. And it was uh, it was called the Blues Brothers. And they performed a lot. And they were quite awesome. They were so entertaining. And the movie was very, in today, it's thought of a lot differently than when it came out. Uh, it's regarded much more highly. Um, but, yeah, having bottles thrown at you behind a cage while you're trying to play guitar parodies, which is why I deserve the glass being thrown at me. But the... Um, owner of the club i said can i get off stage he went no you're killing you're doing great so that was how affection was shown i, I mean but i've been doing stand up as soon as it opened the floodgates i went back out again i mean that's straight out of roadhouse i didn't realize that happened in the world of stand-up uh way back when either i always played music clubs because my stand-up was kind of I, I always i don't know i i would i'd play music venues a lot of hard rocks once they started um, and and uh, it is out of Roadhouse. <laughs> I played sci-fi uh, film audiences. I I feel like I even played the Star Wars bar. You know, I was like an, a lounge act. But I uh, I would do an hour of stand-up or forty-five, and then half-hour guitar. And wow. it was a lot of music parodies, but a lot of original songs, and only a couple are are decent. I wrote like a hundred songs. I would register them with the Library of Congress. I'd fill out the forms to copyright them, all this crap you do, which means nothing. <laughs> um, now all you have to do is record them and be on a show, and then that's it. You're an ass cap, and you you uh, you get royalties for singing them on something. But I, I just, is this part of what I do? It's one of the things I love doing. I And I'm, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm doing two shows um, Thursday, I'm doing a Wichita, the Orpheum Theater, and they're just opening up again. They're doing a lot of comedy. And I mean, Paramount has always done comedy in Austin, mm -hmm. always. And it's it's just a great, great theater. Um, 
It's, and a lot of my friends, a lot of people I talk to all the time, that we know where we all are. We look at each other's list of tour dates. And I'm, I'm doing more clubs by choice because I'm really riffing and I'm trying to figure out, you know, how great can I make this new special be? Because I'm always really hard on myself and, and not feeling like I've done anywhere near the level of comedy that I feel like I'm at now. And I hope in a, a year or two, I feel even stronger about that in myself. But I, I'm enjoying stand-up like I never have. I, I'm, this was this last weekend was the weekend, only weekend I didn't go out this year because it was Thanksgiving and I was with my wife and my kids. And the, they're different people, by the way. Um, <laughs> That's good. So, I, yeah, I think so. I think it's better, um, especially if you have to fill out forms, you know, for anything <laughs> like when we, when we donate blood. I don't want them to go. That's my is that your daughter and my wife. You know, that's takes you back to things you can't say. And like National Lampoon's Vacation, the original Randy Quaid's daughter says, my daddy says I'm the best kisser. And that would still be used today on the proper show. You know, on Reno 911, you would see that, you know. You don't, you know, incest jokes, there's a lot of things you don't joke about because it exists, but people that do it are so damn sick that that's what you're joking about, how incredibly sick they are. You just that's have why to, the aristocrats was popular. You're right about that. You just have to attribute the uh, incest joke to either Arkansas or West Virginia. You're in the clear at that point. I think you you really got to broaden your, your sights on that. I think it really, it can cover... <laughs> You can cover most of North America. I think you can cover the whole world. I mean, I'd like to see the, uh, you know, how the coronavirus chart tells you what states it's popular in. Yeah. You know, it, you know, it's popular. Uh, I think you could do that with an incest chart. You could do the entire North America and show where where it's really prevalent. And it depends on who made the chart. I mean, if the chart maker is guilty. That might, you might get a whole skewed chart, and you got to do it all over again because that—that that would be complete fraud, and you would have to demand a, a council come in and recount. I think it's the same people that no, I'm not going to do a political joke, but you know where I was going. <laughs> come to come to find out, incest is uh, seasonal regionally, so it's worse in Minnesota in the springtime, worse in Arkansas in the summer. It is. It's. It's also in the winter because you're indoors with your family. So you know, I would think the worst time for incest is the holidays. I would say Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> Are you coming home for Christmas? No, I'm not. In fact, I'm never coming home. Well, good for you. Now file charges. That's that's what I would say to people. And again, this went down a road that probably will make some people go. I'm not going to go see that crap. But um, it w- I won't be talking about incest on Friday night unless I have requests. You know, I really want to make I really want to entertain. <laughs> I'll try I'll try to avoid yelling out from the crowd. Tell us an incest joke, but I can't make any promises, Bob. Uh, if you look, do what you got to do. You bring in your mom. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Can I do a little bit of uh, internet fact check with you really quickly? Because anywhere from 5 to 95% of what we read online is complete BS. And there's yeah, obviously a lot up. written about you. Do you own the pipe that Rodney Dangerfield used to smoke weed with that was gifted to you by his widow, Joan? Yeah, there's a couple of us. Uh, I know he gave one to Jim Carrey. He had a bunch of pipes, but I have a, a, a pipe and I have a pot box um, that he enjoyed keeping his, his greenery in. Yeah, 
And I, the reason that that became known was because uh, I was talking to Bill Burr and Burr Kreischer on their podcast together, and I showed it to them. I went in the other room and I got it. It's actually behind this wall. Wow. Uh, which is good in case I'm a burglar is watching. I don't know. <laughs> but I don't know what you get for it. Rodney's pipe. I don't know if you get money for it. You might just want to smoke it. I don't think you'd want to uh, put that on eBay. That's all about the sentimental value there. And as you mentioned yeah. uh, earlier in the conversation, you're longtime friends with Dave Coulier. Before the Full House stuff even, you guys knew one another in the L.A. stand-up scene back in the 1980s. Is Dave the mystery man from Alanis Morissette's You Ought to Know? There are three guys, I'm told, in that song. And one of them was Dave. They were dating. And they're, they still have a friendly-ish relationship now. They, they have emailed over the years. And she's cooler than hell. You know, she's just so cooler than hell. That doesn't really track. But she is, um, and I've gone and seen her since. I actually went and saw her do something she recorded something at the Grammy Museum, and I and I went and said hi, and it was a big hug and sweetness. She's just a very brilliant person and a kind person, and she and Dave were were dating for a while. And um, I was at his house in Santa Monica when he went. That was weird. Alanis just called me and said, "Hate to call you during dinner." She didn't sing it, but those she said the lyric. Oh wow! Uh, to him on the phone, uh, but. He says, she never went down on me in the theater. I went, yeah, I know, Dave. I know. So he didn't do the popcorn box trick either. So no, it was a composite of a breakup song and how men treated women badly. And I think that's why it resonated and still resonates because uh, men have treated women badly. And yes, women have treated men badly. I've been treated badly, but I haven't. Um, I have written songs about it, actually. Mm. I, I've done the same kind of thing. Mine is like, people think of me as a, a guy that's been a player, but I'm, I am I, I clean up well, but I'm not a, a player. I just, I would never, that's why I haven't been called out by anybody because there's nothing to call out. Mine would be a verbal conversation. Uh, I'd be single or I'd be stupid and have a drink and say something like, wow, you know, you're so great. You'd be, you know, you're a very lucky boyfriend kind of thing. And that's that's crossing a line. That's a person that's with somebody. That's me being a violator, not like get in the car, which there are people that are like that. Um, I used to have a bunch of friends. I could say who they are. I think it is talk to one of them once. Um who would say, you know, oh, you know, you got a lady in the car, you just take it out. They, they got two options, get out of the car, and, you know, and then I'm like, what? What are you talking about? I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. So that's why, um, apparently, um, I guess the only person that said I did something to them was my ex-wife, which was we had three daughters. So we have proof that we <laughs> had sex three times. That's the, that's, that's my crime. <laughs> Yeah, I've never understood the whole whip it out bit. Uh, that just seems a bit creepy to me. It's uh, it's so creepy. It's just stupid. I mean, it's uh, it would be, and some guys wouldn't mind it if a if some uh, if a lady was wearing chaps and nothing else, you know, took off her skirt or her her wrap and said, "Go at it." That's just human whores. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's your quote. 
exactly but, yeah yeah uh, i don't i don't i don't guys doing that is uh you know it comes from uh upbringing and not treating people with dignity so yeah. that's i ain't that guy that's, in fact it's so funny i mean my podcast um i really live it i mean i know you live yours you do it all the time right mm-hmm. oh yeah i did want i just had a Andrew Yang's on this week, and then um, I'm going to be talking to Nate Bergazzi a little later today. I love him. You know, I love comics that are just talking honest and talking their voice, and you feel like you're talking to a friend. That's what I. That's how I look at stand up. You're talking to a friend. Uh, the audience is your friend, and you might upset your friend sometimes, or go down the road where your friend goes, you, will you cut that shit out? What is wrong with you? Or <laughs> your friend going, damn, that's funny. You thought of that? That's always insulting when your friend goes, did you think of that? <laughs> no, no, I had a, a, a mosquito came in the room and whispered in my ear. But um, I did a, a callers episode, which will be on in the next week or two. I used to do, the show's called Bob Saget's Here For You. So I used to do it where I'd call people, uh, so every other week I'd call people and see how they're doing. And it became more of a Dr. Phil kind of thing and a little therapy oriented because people were really hurting because it was right when quarantine went into effect. I started the show right before they said, I'm sorry, Bob, here's the the podcast board for your home. We can't do it in studio. And I've done it at home ever since and happily because I get to talk to people in England, Australia and things like that. So, uh, the, the weird part is that, that that I I did this episode and I talked to about 20 people that left messages for me and I just loved it. It was, they sounded happier. They're going through a hard time. Hmm. One young lady was in Walmart shopping. She was laughing in a sad way about her friend's dog, her brother-in-law's dog that had to be put down. And she's shopping in Walmart. And I went, I, this is the most American conversation I've ever had, you know, and, and most universal. Um, I've had to put my dog down. Anybody that's had to do it, you know, if there's humor to be found, the humor for, for us, just for myself and this nice person was just, the, we both went through it and we loved our dogs. Um, Hers outlived my dog, which made me resent her. But uh, <laughs> but it was actually really nice to reach out and, and talk to people because you really get screwed up. You know, everybody goes, "Who's your guest?" You know, and then you look at the Starfucker Club and you see, oh, they're the biggest stars on podcasts, so they have, you know, oh my God, Tom Hanks just called them. That's going to be the number one rated show, and it is, and it's it's fun conversation. They all are. I mean, there's there's a million choices. You know, everybody you call, every every person you know has a podcast. You know, they just started it, or they do it, and they have fifty listeners, and they're they might be great at it. I don't know, but it's it's a it's nice to talk to real people. That sounds so weird and 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 authoritarian. It just sounds stupid, but it's nice to talk to people that are not in show business that are just trying to get through the day and see if they have something funny. 
the, up their sleeve. The world of podcasting is a lot like the city of Austin and live music. We are the live music capital of the world, which means that you have yeah. to sift through a lot of bad music to get to the good stuff. But the good stuff is really, really good. The Stevie Ray Vaughns, Gary Clark Juniors of the world. It's the same thing in podcasting. There are a lot of people who are, just aren't very good at conversations. But when you find those really good ones, man, there's nothing better. That you're 100% right. And the, the Paramount Theater is right by that intersection, right? That where all the music is. What, what is that intersection? Sixth uh, and Congress is what it's close to. Sixth Street for a long time has been known as the live music strip, if you will. But it's it's all over town. I mean, you can go to Northwest Austin and find a, a really cool honky tonk that's playing good music on a Friday night. I love it so much. It's so, it's so special. Yeah, music would be king uh i would think it, it is everywhere i mean music is the universal uh band-aid you know it pulls everybody together and stand-up comedy on a lesser scale um on, except for you know half a dozen people it's it's uh it's a it's a second it's not a close second i don't think because you can tour the world if you're a great musician and it's that's the universal language you know but stand-up, if you're doing American stand-up, I had Eddie Azard on my podcast, mm. and we were talking about, you know, puns and how puns are, there are some that transcend to to Lund England, and Lund England is what I call it. And then, <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's, it's early. And then, um, it's early, I can't up at noon. Uh, but, but then you... Puns don't work anywhere else. You know, you have to write puns for France and speak in French. Although people go and tour the world, Bill Burr goes and hits the world, and and he's doing it in English, and he's pretty damn spot on. Great, you know, he, he knows what he's doing. Well, saying the word fag has a very different meaning in Great Britain versus here in America, for instance. So there's very it basic words like years. that. There's, yeah, there's yeah well, that word should be omitted anyway. But that the old school version is you're, you know, you're just a nerd. It, that's what it would have meant. And now it's a slander. I mean, my name is Saget. So I, I took a lot of heat because of the rhyming scheme. So kids called me terrible things. And so I became sensitive to the plight of being called that word. And that is obviously um, a terrible homophobic slur, but in England, it means cigarette. Yeah, but it also means a cigarette that a gay man is smoking that you're having, that you're performing oral sex on. Is that right? No, you can't say that anymore. <laughs> so that was just my way of trying to tell you that it's a bad, bad word. God dang it. But I did Bob, preface you, it with you, three you, minutes. You they called me sag at the, you know. You totally deadpanned me on that one. Hey, final question, Bob. Uh, thank you so much for the time today. No, so, please don't say goodbye. My wife's asleep. <laughs> uh, well, we've got one more question that may take a few minutes. So, um, Okay, good. good. I'm, as Don Rickles would say, I'm so lonely. Oh, man. Speaking of uh, great moments from Dirty Work, Dom Rickles is hilarious with him just roasting Artie and Norm. But uh, celebrity deaths, speaking of Norm, don't really affect me, but Norm's passing hit me hard, Bob. Best weekend update anchor ever. One of the best talk show guests ever. Hilarious comedian. His deadpan wit is unparalleled. You and Norm were good friends, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Do you have a favorite memory from your time around Norm that just encapsulates who he is as a person? Well, 
thanks, by the way, uh, for the sympathy thing. The people that are affected the most are, you know, the, his closest, closest, you know, his, his close family, his, you know, his son, his mom, uh, his dearest friend, who's a friend of mine, um, Lori Joe is her name. I don't like, I haven't talked about any, and I don't want to violate their privacy, but uh, yeah, I have a lot, there's a lot of stories. Uh, getting together with Norm, you know you're in for an adventure. Uh, Norm did not drive. So whenever we did anything, I'll pick you up, Norm. It's okay, I'll pick you up. But picking Norm up, uh, you know, he, he, he's a savant. He was a, I talked to him in present tense about him. It's so strange. I'm sure many people that have lost people close to them get confused when they talk in present tense with someone that's gone. He shouldn't be gone. That's one thing. And he kept it quiet. And that's quite admirable when you think about it and on a few different levels. Um, it's amazing. It's so, it's, it's so, it's so norm that he was able to do that. Also. I just gained that much more respect for him that he kept something like that. So private. Well, people's private lives is none of anybody's business, exactly. but we're in a culture where that's all anybody feeds on. They yep. want to see what someone said mean to someone. They want to see a Twitter fight. They want to see a bunch of shit. They just want to see the garbage rather than look for the, the good stuff that's in the garbage. Somebody has to have thrown an engagement ring into the garbage when they broke up that you can find amongst all of the disgusting other things in the garbage. But um, Norm would like putting, pulling practical jokes on me. And so he would do that. Um, and I talked about it. I did this 37 minute thing. It was the night he passed on a Monday and on a Tuesday, I, um, I'll actually tell you a, a, a thing he said that he didn't say. It was just like I, I channeled his spirit on stage right after he passed. So it was a, a Monday, and then on a Tuesday, a few of us, we were all hit. I did like a, a thing that I put out as a podcast. Uh, Conan did one. Um, Artie Lang did one. Artie Lang started doing his podcast again um, because of this. Because it hit us hard. Robin Williams' death hit everybody hard. But Norm was, a lot of people felt underappreciated because of how brilliant he, he was. And Conan made a point of that very intelligently. I wish Norm could see the love that he's getting right now yeah. uh, alive because uh, he didn't really. And he did, Norm did get that. Norm would go out on stage and the audience would go, Norm! And he was their buddy and he was their Mitch Hedberg. He was their Bill Hicks. He was the guy that they were looking up to live. So Norm felt the love. Norm, why, it's why you do it. It's one of the things that keeps you doing it. Not just, I'm going to write the best joke anybody's ever heard. It's you're doing it for them, with them, and you're doing it for yourself, and you're doing it for your friends. He was the one that was do jokes that he wouldn't want to do them unless it could make you laugh or make me laugh. And I think that's a big influence on me. It was always a big influence on me just in terms of, you know, even when I was directing Dirty Work, he was, we had Entertainment Tonight there and they were filming us. And he said it really loud for Entertainment Tonight to hear. He says, I don't know why. Why is the direct, why is the actor from Full House giving me the acting notes? <laughs> you know, 
and that was just embarrassing. I couldn't even do an impression. I don't do impressions, but uh, I do voices. But I was on stage. I had to go to Portland, Oregon, and do shows on the weekend after his passing. And so I didn't think I was going to be able to do them. So it was a Friday night, first show. Norm passed on a, publicly on a Tuesday, but he had just passed. I knew he wasn't well. <clears throat> Excuse me. We were working on something together. We'd been in contact. And about a week before, he dropped out of contact. But I knew something was wrong for a while. I, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, but, I mean, it matters. He shouldn't be gone. But it doesn't matter that I didn't hear from him because I treasured what times I had with him. And he was, he was he was always kind of disgruntled, which was kind of fun, you know. You would say observations. He's truly an outsider, you know. Uh, and yet, he, he was right there as your friend. That's what's so interesting. So, and he knew, damn, he knew what funny was. So I'm on stage. I'm I walk out on stage. I had I just had to say I couldn't talk. I said, I have to address the elephant in the room. And I did the usual thing. Not you, sir, you know, to an obese man, which is obviously not what you do before you're going to eulogize someone. A shaming joke. And it wasn't a joke. It was a statement. So, because uh, he was big. And I then said, um, I, I'd be amiss if I didn't say, I didn't mean I'd be amiss like I'd be a, a young girl, but I'd be... Um, I did say a mess. I, I, I would talk like Norm if I was going to reflect on him. Because um, I had to do some interviews that where, that, where they just brought it up. And, and I said, um, I have to just say that I lost a friend this week. And I think you all lost somebody this week. And it was at a, a club that Norm frequented. And it was truly like Austin, a comedy-loving town. Very much like that. Very much getting getting everything letting someone go on a riffing pattern or or just getting the most obscure type joke or a strange joke I, and i said i just wanted to get a round of applause if i could for my friend norm mcdonald and i was crying because i am a pussy um in terms of wussy or wimp not in terms of you know a vagina well i could say i'm a vagina I guess I don't, that doesn't really offend anybody. <laughs> Just makes fun of me. Anyway, I was. Uh, I don't know that that may uh, that may offend some people in 2021, Bob. Really? Yes. Um, I, it's just a part of the body. I I, I mean, know. I, and man, part- I'm such a nipple. How does that upset you? I'm such a nipple. I mean, I think the or only people say they're an people say they're an asshole. That's part of a body. Uh, yes, yes. You may be better off going anus there. I feel like you can't refer to female anatomy, though. You have to call yourself like a flaccid member or something. Well, I wouldn't say flaccid member because that's like 60s porn. I would say (laughs) I'm a soft, I'm a soft cock. Okay. I'm a limp dick. I would just say I'm a douche. But that goes, where do that, where do you use them? We're back at the same word. I can't say. Yeah, I don't even know what douche is anymore. Douche is something that cleans out your vagina if you happen to be a vagina, which is where I started. But I'm, let's get back to the sentimental part because this is totally ruined. Norm would be really upset that I went down this tangent. 
No, and no, you, you 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 earned a bunch of brownie points by going 1940s dad jokes at the very beginning of the story. Norm would be so happy about that that you were yeah, doing. Yeah, he that did for like him. he liked anything from the 40s. So, um, what all that happened was, I said, "Let's get a round of applause for Norm," and the audience stood up and applauded for five minutes because it was my first time hitting the stage and it only happened once. I would say something the next couple shows, but it was that first show and first time back and the hardcore comedy fans were there and they knew we were friends and they'd heard my podcast on it and literally five minutes. I'm not exaggerating. And then it dissipated and there was quiet and I collected myself and I said, I kind of summoned Norm's voice. And again, forgive this pale impression. I was like, that's great, Saget. You get five minutes of applause and a standing ovation because I'm dead. <laughs> so, I mean, that even happened at the end of Dirty Work when Chevy Chase's character is dead. Norm says in the narration, I believe I thought of this because I always did gallows humor because we lost so many people in my family. I had that sense of humor. And Norm goes, Dr. Farthing, well, he's dead, you know, <laughs> and, and that was Norm's, you know, he, he those themes were in his work. And in all the stand-up, anybody that did it, even, you didn't have to do a deep dive. It was running all the time. A lot of death humor, cancer humor, death humor was in his last special, which was beautific. Talked about his dad once when he was uh, in stand-up and in life. He's at a funeral and he's at a wake and he's in the bodies, right? The body's right there. It's like a guy that landed from another planet, literally. And that's what stand-up is sometimes. And it doesn't have to be. It can also be like, why? Here's a verbal exchange. I love comedians that will let you know the verbal exchange they had with someone in a store or their friend and having that discourse and trying to figure that out. I do that. I have that in my stand-up now because I'm, I don't know. I'm just a different artist, or I consider myself an artist. I I, I change. I, I do not stay the same. So if people think, oh, he's dirty. Oh, he's not like Full House. Okay, yeah, that's right, 35 years ago reference. But um, Norm was doing this bit, and the body of his dad is there. What's good about me is I always turn it back to me. And then Norm would go, you're talking about me, Saget. <laughs> well, why are you talking about yourself again? Jesus Christ. Um, I don't think he said Jesus Christ a lot. He was he was a pretty faithful man, actually. That, that's a pretty good Norm invitation, by the way. I know you downplayed it earlier. Right? That sounds spot on there. Well, I literally got He's right up there behind me there. There he is. There's Dirty Works poster. Yep. Yeah, that's uh, that's my friend. So he, uh, he did this whole bit. This guy comes over while he's looking at the body of his dad at the wake. And the guy says to him, uh, hey, you want a sandwich? And he goes, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm looking at this dead guy. Uh, I don't know. Sandwich. And it really was the joke. It was just the situation. How do you eat a sandwich at a wake in front of a dead guy? The Jewish people uh, bury somebody and then go what's called the shiva, which means translated uh, is, means delicatessen. And so then they go and they eat. They eat corned beef and stuff. And that's how they get over their sadness. Um, but Norm's was, Norm's was, uh, beautiful. I, I don't know what to say, except I will miss him forever. So 
Well, thank you for sharing those kind words, and, and thank you for the time today, Bob. Bob Saget is a Grammy-nominated stand-up comedian, director, actor, and best-selling author, and he's performing here in Austin this Friday night at the historic Paramount. You can go to austintheater.org to snag some of the few remaining tickets left. Bob, thank you so much for the time today, and uh, thank you for your career in entertainment. Uh, this guy here in Austin has uh, enjoyed your work for a long time now, and I look forward to continuing to do so this Friday and far into the future. Well, it, it's a pleasure. You're incredibly kind. And uh, come back and say hi afterward because um, I have COVID and I'd like to give it to you. So um, my all my shows are super spreader events. So you can't do these jokes. You can't do that. You can't joke about it. But you are smiling. I just want, all, I want listeners to know you're smiling. Well, Bob, I look forward to hearing the abortion joke on Friday. Thank you again, man. Oh, I don't know if I'll do it unless everybody comes and sees me. And sees me, but I, 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 uh, I probably will do it now that you mentioned it. I'll dedicate it to you and say that you told me to say, so I'm out of danger. <laughs> Lovely. I'll, uh, I'll take that on. Thanks, Bob. Have a great day, man. Safe travels to Austin. Thanks so much. Have a great one. I'll see you Friday night. And thanks to you for listening. Join me next time when I speak with environmental and social justice advocate, journalist, and best-selling author Michael Schellenberger on San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.